Alrighty. That's what it's really We should get started. Okay. Last week we started talking about the origin of sin and the fall and its effects on us. Today we're going to continue that conversation and uh, get into a very important topic about how it spread to all men or why sin spread to all men. We should know that it has. If you're breathing, you should know that sin has spread to you. Uh, but why did it spread to you? If Adam was the one who sinned, well, what's the deal? Why didn't that just affect Adam? Why did it affect the rest of us? We're going to talk about that today. But why don't we open with a word of prayer? Lord, we do thank you so much for all that you've given us. We thank you for your word that you've provided for us truth, that we can look into it and understand and grow, and that we can be changed by it. Please give us a great time of study today, uh, that we would grasp biblical theology that you've revealed to us in your word, that we would uh, know more about how to serve you and live in a manner that's pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. We ended here on this slide, uh, Wayne Grudem's statement that uh, the fall gave wrong answers to these three questions, what is true, what is right, and who am I? So, uh, kind of hopefully putting your mind in a little bit where we were last week. And if you have your handout sheet from last week, that's we're still on that one, I believe. Is that true? Yeah. Okay. I didn't print any more, so sorry about that. Hopefully you just kept yours from last week. Well, let's start uh, going through here and seeing... Guys on the right screen here. And see what, uh, what else we can learn. We're going to talk about headship today. Sin and headship. Let's look at Genesis 3 together. Go all the way back to Genesis 3 and let's look at some interesting stuff in there. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 8. No. We'll start at verse 6, actually. If we want to read verses 6 through 9, that would be good. Who can read that for us? I can get it. Okay. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man, and said to him, where are you? All right. For whom does God seek in response to the act of sin? Who does God come looking for? Adam. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Because you see the action in verse 6. You get the whole dialogue there between the woman and the serpent, verses 1 through 5. In verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that it was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and then she gave to her husband. So when the Lord comes, they hear him walking through the garden, probably a Christophany, and they interact with the Lord here. He calls to the man and said to him, verse 9, where are you? Why does God not call for Eve? After all, she was the one who was talking to the serpent. She's the one who looked at the fruit and said, yeah, that seems good. She took from it. She's the one who ate of it. She's the one who gave it to her husband. 
Doesn't she really seems more responsible here, right? Why does God not call for Eve? Adam is the head of the household, head of the family, head of the woman. It's his responsibility. Okay, so even though, yes, uh, Eve took of the fruit and ate, and she is responsible for her own actions, right? As we're considering what's going on in the home or in that relationship, Adam is ultimately responsible because he was the one that God created first. He's the one who God uh, created and said, you are to subdue the earth. And Eve was given to him as a helper. His wife was given as a helper. And this is uh, Paul's argument in the New Testament in a variety of places. But you can think of uh, 1 Timothy 2 where it talks about um, a woman should not teach her have authority over a man. He makes the interesting statement in all that. Adam was created first. What does that matter? <laughs> CNN isn't here recording. You can say it. What, 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 what does it matter? So God created the man, and then he saw it wasn't quite good enough, so he made a help me yeah. for the man. And it's not like God thought Adam would be fine on his own, right? No. It's not like God was learning. He created Adam and thought, oh, this will be fine. Oh, it's not fine. Okay, I guess i got to do something else. He was doing all this intentionally to teach us something, wasn't he? To teach Adam something, to teach Eve something, to teach us as it's recorded in Scripture. So Adam is the responsible one. He's the head of the home. The man is the head. Adam was held responsible for what happened in the garden because he served as Eve's head, the leader who was held responsible. Uh, one of the things I've written about in my book, the You're the Husband book, is men are responsible. And that can be read two different ways. One way is to read it and say, oh, if someone's a man, he's always a responsible person. <laughs> uh, like he takes care of things. He's always sure to dot his I's and cross his T's and all that stuff. That's not what that sentence means. It means men are held responsible. Men are held accountable. Culpable. They're culpable. When you're in charge, it's your responsibility. That's it. That's it. There's a, an accountability and ownership, uh, stewardship rather, uh, responsibility. More than being the head of his union with Eve, also Adam was considered the head of humanity. So not just the head of his wife, but the head of all humanity. And Romans 5 is the clearest chapter. We're going to turn there in a moment. We're going to stay in Genesis for the time being. But Romans 5 is the clearest chapter in Scripture on this issue that Adam, as our head, took on a sinful nature that we all then inherited. Very important that we understand this, the transmission of sin. So turn over to uh, Genesis 5 with me. It's a couple of pages over perhaps, Genesis 5. And we see something in the first verse that we know clearly from chapter 1. So this is multiple times now this has been taught to us in the book of Genesis. Verse 1, that in the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That is a clear and central theme in Genesis, that man is created in the image of God. Now, I'll look down at verse 3 of chapter 5. Adam was 130 when he became a daddy again. <laughs> he became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. <laughs> now, this is a very interesting 
phrase here because it's saying in verse 1, Adam is created in the likeness and the image of God. And then in verse 3, Adam became the father of a son who was in his likeness, in his image. It's not saying explicitly here that Seth was created in the image of God as Adam was, even though it's true, Seth bore the image of God just like you do. What it's communicating here is that through Adam, that image and likeness is passed on. Now, when Adam was created, was there any sin nature that was in him? No. Directly by the hand of God before sin entered the world, pristine image of God. But Seth now, what did he inherit? Did he inherit a pristine image of God? No. Image of God's still there, right? Human dignity's still there. But what's intermingled, it's not like really beside it. It's what's totally intermingled with it. Mangled. It's a sin. That's it. A sin nature. Because, I mean, let's think about this. This is a verse that, um, I think it's an interesting thing. If you listened or were present at my debate with Kwaku a year and a half ago, um, the LDS argument is, we're made in the image and likeness of God, therefore we look like God physically. And uh, they'll even turn to chapter 5, verse 3 here and say, see, Seth, it's saying that Seth looked like his daddy. Is that really what Moses was communicating in Genesis 5? Did people really think, huh, I wonder if Seth was a giraffe? <laughs> I, I think people know. Uh, this is clear in Genesis 1, everything beget after its own kind, Right? <coughs> It's the pattern. We all live in it. We all know it. I think there's something deeper that's being communicated here. Not that Adam had a son that looked like him, but rather Adam had a son who inherited spiritually, immaterially, this stuff from his father, this likeness of his father that is the image of God and the sin that comes through uh, the fall. So we see the transmission of the image of God and a fallen state. That transmission goes from one generation to the next. That makes sense? Any thoughts or questions on that? Is it also referring to that Seth was the righteous, the righteous one? Not righteous, out of sin, but he tried to follow God. Um, I don't know if I've ever gotten that out of there. I might need to know more about what you're saying. The descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. Oh, I see. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if we look through genealogies, I mean, this occurs all throughout Genesis, especially when you get to Genesis 10, and it lists out different families and nations that come from those families. You see patterns of sin that get passed on that are um, pretty gnarly. I guess is one way you could say it. I mean, I mean, you think about Jacob and Esau, right? And the Edomites who came from Esau. Um, and the Moabites and all these other tribes and nations that were, I don't know, they received all kinds of gnarly sins that were passed on from their fathers. But in a, we want to be careful about saying Seth was righteous, right? Right. Because there's the fallen state that was passed on yeah. too. Well, and But it was perhaps, perhaps well, Seth well, was... called perfect, I mean... Yeah, yeah, perhaps Seth was a man of faith, yeah. as opposed to Cain. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, scripture doesn't spell those things out as clearly as we might want, but I think as we look at generations, we can deduce something like that for sure. Yeah.
Verse 3 says, after a son in his own likeness and then after his image. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between them two mm -hmm. phrases? Um, it's been a while since I've taught the uh, meaning of those two verses, though in the first lesson of this, um, Tyler, did you teach the first lesson of anthropology and cover that? Uh, if I did, I forgot. Okay, all right. <laughs> I, well, same with me. If I did, I forgot. Um, so I'd have to do a little bit of a study again because there is a difference. There's some nuance there. Um, but I'd have to go back and get do a little more study. I, I mean, the two words are very similar. Right. It looks like that word for image <coughs> has been translated as likeness in other places. Like 1 Samuel 6, the word for image here is translated likeness. 1 Samuel... Six multiple times. So, anyway, uh, yeah, I'd have to look into it a little more. Okay. Jeremy. Yes, sir. Got a question. Yes. And you may have answered this before. Um, when you were debating Quaker, he, I think he made it pretty clear at the outset that he did not represent the church. Yeah, right? they all have to give that disclaimer. They, right, they have to give that disclaimer. Now I understand. So, my question, because... I was aware of LDS theology on what the nature of God is, but it was, it just seemed really radical when I was listening. And, he, and it seemed like he was even off from what the standard LDS view might be. Is, well, there are a lot is that of, an accurate statement? There are a lot of unanswerable questions <clears throat> in LDS theology. So, for instance, one of the things that I talked to him about in the debate, and the cross-examination that came out was the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. And I imagine you'll talk to the average Mormon layperson and say, is the Holy Ghost with you as a constant companion? And they'll say, yeah, sure. But do you believe that the Holy Ghost is absolutely, fully, totally present in multiple places at one time? No, they don't believe that. Um, so you start digging into that because they don't believe in immateriality. They don't believe that even is even a thing. They believe spirit matter exists, but spirit matter still has the same spatial limitations as matter matter. Uh, spirit matter is like this, it's just invisible. So, um, so you start digging into those things, right. and a lot of a lot, a lot of Latter-day Saints have never thought of that. And I, and I wasn't arguing that the LDS position for the mainstream LDS church is logical or follows I know. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean i just it just it did strike me you, you know i still remember now i'm like going it's just bizarre yeah. uh-huh yeah yep it's pretty strange yeah okay so yeah spirit matter it says in doctrine and covenants i don't know which chapter uh spirit matter is finer and purer than the matter we have it's so fine and so pure it can't be seen with human eyes it's basically it's this this just invisible Okay, sin and headship. Let's go to Romans 5. Romans chapter 5. This is critical to our understanding of how sin has been passed on to all of us. It's also critical to our understanding as, uh, of headship. Because we don't just talk about headship when it comes to sin. There's headship in a variety of contexts. Would someone read verses 12 to 14, please? Romans 5, 12 to 14. Who's got it? Okay. Walker, is your hair different? No. 
<laughs> he walked in and I was like, who is that? Oh, it's Walker. <laughs> yeah, I got Curly for my show, so I'm just getting used to it. Okay. Curly boy for the show choir. Huh? They're, doing, they're doing like a Greek section. <laughs> I see. So, okay. Icarus. And I can be a little Caesar. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 12 to 14. Okay. Thanks. Go ahead. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world. But sin is not taken into account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin, by breaking a command, as did Adam, who was a pattern of the one to come. Alright, so at the end of verse 14, it says, Adam was a type or a pattern of him who was to come. Adam is a type of the Messiah. The only way that Adam can be a type of Christ is if there is a headship aspect. In every other way, Adam is the opposite of Christ, right? Yeah. Uh, and this is what Romans 5 is going to outline for us. I mean, in what ways did Adam act Christ-like on behalf of humanity? Uh, no ways, right? Uh, he, he made Christ necessary, and that's about it. Uh, he... We don't have um, Adam being a copy of Christ. We have him being an anti-type of Christ. So Adam, it goes on, and we're going to read some more verses, but basically Adam brings in sin as an anti-type of Christ who brings in righteousness. Christ comes and corrects all of the errors of Adam. He, the second Adam fixes the issues brought about by the first Adam. So the headship aspect is the similarity. Uh, that Adam, what he did, was on behalf of all humanity. Just as when Christ did what he did, it was on behalf of humanity. But the details of what they brought to humanity are opposite. So there's a similar headship aspect, but everything else is opposite. When Adam sinned as the responsible head, remember not just for Eve, but for all humanity, he did so as a representative. Therefore, as we understand imputed righteousness... We understand imputed sin. Let's look at verses 15 to 19 now, the next section, and we'll talk about this imputed righteousness stuff. Who would read 15 to 19? Who's got it? Go ahead, Jim. So the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound abounded in the And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For by one man's offense, death reigned through the, through the one. Much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Say 19? Yeah. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteousness, righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. All right. So, uh, imputation is a good gospel word. Uh, this is really the word that separates someone with a true gospel gospel from someone with a false gospel. 
Because uh, when you think of what imputation is, you can just consider this phrase, put on your account. Put on your account. And when it comes to gospel proclamation, we'll often hear about imputed righteousness. That you had an infinite debt to God. Right? You were in the red negatively, infinitely. However, because of what Jesus has done through his finished work, your trusting in the finished work of Christ flips that. Now you have infinite positive righteousness. You had an infinite debt that you owed to God, and you couldn't pay that. It's infinite. But now, as a Christian, you're not just brought to zero, but through the gospel, you have infinite positive righteousness on your account. And is this righteousness your own? We need to be a little quicker and clearer with that. Is this righteousness your own? No. Okay, thank you. Okay. That's, it's imputed to you from who? Jesus. Yes, Jesus Christ. It's put on your account. Imputed righteousness. Now, the first part of that presentation there, we were talking about a bank account, the infinite negative, we have to ask how it got there. And for whatever reason, lots of people want to shy away from, well, it was imputed to us from Adam. We want to talk about it, but we, we did it ourselves. And that's true. I mean, you, you added your own sin. You're responsible for your sin. You've done, you've disobeyed. You've done wrong things. But from the moment that we existed and from God's eyes held accountable, it was because of the sin that was imputed to us. From Adam. That's what Romans 5 talks about. This sin was inherited. And what we have in Romans 5 is this beautiful doctrine of imputed righteousness. When we talk about all that we have from Christ gives us an infinitely positive bank account, Romans 5 is very clear on this. And it's equally as clear as we receive this from Adam. And if you want this from the scriptures, you've got to take this too. They go hand in hand. And so that's why John Frame has said, if we object to God's act of condemning us in Adam, we should equally object to his justifying us in Christ. <laughs> it's equal. They're the same act of imputation. They're both heads. They're both representatives. MacArthur and Mayhew. In some, both men, Adam and Christ, are seen as representatives of humanity. And for, the, for both, the effects of their actions are placed on others. Adam is the representative of sinful humanity, and Jesus is the representative of righteous humanity. They are both heads over humanity. And I'll read from a couple books here in a moment, but I'll stop there to see if there are any thoughts or questions on this imputation both ways. Yes, Melissa. Well, like, obviously we know that Jesus' righteousness isn't imputed to everyone. Yep. Like Adam's sinfulness was. Yep. But, um, People could look at this passage like, therefore, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. Yep. And they could say, see, well, we all are sinners through Adam, but we're all saved through Christ. Like, universalism. Yep. Um, they would have to do so ignoring the entire context of the okay. book of Romans, but yes, they could say that. <laughs> <laughs> so you would just have to take them to all the other places in Romans and in the Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I mean Paul, so Paul's the author of that letter. And five is, of course, not even all the way to the middle of the letter. Um, there's so much, but the first four and a half chapters that precede this headship talk. 
makes it pretty clear. I mean, chapter 1. Who's, who's under sin according to chapter 1 of Romans? You guys need to know the outline of Romans. Everyone. Everyone. Chapter 1 particularly, who's he talking oh. about? Oh. Everyone is chapter 3. Chapter 1 is Gentiles. Gentiles. Chapter 2 is Jews. Jews. Yeah. yeah, the whole circumcision is nothing argument. Chapter 3 is everyone's under sin. Chapter 4, our works won't justify us. Okay. Abraham is the example in chapter 4. Then he comes along in chapter 5 and says, okay, well, where do you get righteousness? Chapter 5, verse 1, therefore we have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And then chapter 5, chapter 6, outlining what Jesus has done and leading up through uh, 7 and 8 and 9, talking about sanctification, all these things. When he gets into the discussion 9 through 11, talking about uh, salvation in particular for the Jews, what's the great proclamation of chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 of Romans? Therefore, if you confess with your mouth, confess with your mouth that what? Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. That's his whole argument. It's not that every single person is absolutely going to be saved. But it's that Jesus did this as a representative of humanity. Oh, I just shouldn't have said all. Um, all who are in Christ will be saved. But when you look at humanity as a whole, it's some, right? Some will be saved. All have imputed sin. Some will have imputed righteousness. Okay? Um, let's see. Illustration of this headship stuff. This is from Heath Lambert's Theology of Biblical Counseling. It's a good little book. He's talking about uh, headship here. Let's see. He says, This kind of representation happens all the time in our world. My kids attend school every day because I represented them by making a decision about their education. That decision affects them every day of their life, even when they are unhappy about it. A few years ago, my senator, Mitch McConnell, led the United States to pass a bill that I was diametrically opposed to. I registered my disagreement with a letter and a call to a Senate office, but Senator McConnell voted against my wishes. The bill passed, and President George W. Bush signed it into law, and these men represented my interests even when I was opposed to what they were doing. The president and Congress can send troops overseas to fight in armed conflicts. Because of this principle of representation, the world understands the United States to be at war, even when a significant group of Americans are opposed to sending our troops. It's hard to imagine life functioning without the principle of representation. We are happy when representation works in our favor, imputed righteousness, right? As it, as it does with Christ's representation of us and his life and death for our sin. We are unhappy when the same principle works against us as in Adam's work in the garden. The principle is in place, however, whether we are happy or unhappy with it. Because God created this reality, we can trust him that it is good. Make sense? Good. Another illustration from Mr. Ryrie here. Charles Ryrie. Depending on what circles you're from, that name is like a big deal. But I can tell by the reactions in this room, it's not that big deal. Who? Charles Caldwell Ryrie. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's see. It says, uh, I came across an illustration of imputation in a sad experience a former student had. This man, Bill, shared the expenses of a ride home at Christmas time in Joe's car. On the way, another car went through a stop sign and hit Joe's car broadside. 
At the time of the accident, Joe was driving and Bill was asleep in the car. Because Bill was seriously and permanently injured, he sued to collect damages from the owner of the other car. But that owner, or his insurance company, tried to prove negligence on Joe's part. Bill's attorney wrote to him in part as follows, quote, If the jury finds that Joe was negligent, he will undoubtedly be, or it will undoubtedly be imputed to you and you cannot recover. I don't think there is anything that we can do to change that situation now. What linked Bill to Joe and Joe's possible negligence? It was the fact that Bill had shared expenses. Money joined Bill to Joe in Joe's actions. Humanity joined all of us to Adam and to Adam's sin. We all share in Adam's sin and Adam's guilt. We are all equally guilty and in need of remedy for our sin. So a guy shares a ride with another guy, pays expenses. It's not his car. He wasn't driving, but he shared expenses. And they proved the, the driver was negligent. Therefore, he doesn't get anything to pay for all the damages that he had suffered. The negligence was imputed to him. He wasn't driving. Bill wasn't driving. But the judge said that the driver's negligence was imputed to him. We like it when it works in our favor. We don't like it when it goes against <laughs> us, right? That's imputation. Okay. Adam's negligence, beyond that, rebellion imputed to us. Thoughts or questions on these things? Jim. Uh, I've, I've heard it said when you were talking about Adam and Jesus, how they were alike. Through both of them, we received life. Through Adam, we received a corruptible life. Mm -hmm. All men, all, all people received a corruptible life. Through Jesus, man, mankind can receive an uncorruptible mm -hmm. life. Yeah. So they're alike, but different. <laughs> yes, yeah. Adam brings death, and Jesus brings eternal life. Yeah. It's amazing. So, now man's new nature. When I, I'm using this phrase, I'm not talking about after you're saved. We're talking about humanity from before the fall to after the fall. Now that we've gone through the fall, what's humanity's nature like? Romans 5 clearly teaches that death is the penalty for sin. So now man is naturally dead spiritually and is subjected to death physically. Naturally dead spiritually, subjected to death physically. Additionally, human beings now sin by nature. We don't have to be taught how to disobey God, right? <laughs> uh, not at all. We know how to do it from the womb. We are very, very proficient in sinning right from the womb. We don't have to be taught or trained. And this is um, a big split theologically if there are people who don't fully embrace that man is naturally dead spiritually, but that man still has some good in him, or this crazy idea, I think this is the most ridiculous idea that there is, that man is neutral. <laughs> I mean, that makes no sense whatsoever. That man is just neutral, walking through life unaffected by anything. Hey, look at me, I'm just Mr. Neutral Guy, <laughs> and uh, I, I can choose impartially to obey good or, or reject good. You know, I, I'm just impartial. Crazy. Uh, but man, scriptures teach, man is naturally dead spiritually. And that changes a lot of the ways you think about all kinds of theology. Changes the way you think about evangelism. Changes the way you think about church. 
Changes the way you think about counseling. Changes the way you think about all human relationships, doesn't it? It's, to this point, it's very interesting because I've listened to probably 10 hours of Ray Comfort over the years and various other people who use a sort of a semi uh, suppositional yeah. approach, right? But every time he says, Romans 1 says that you know God. Even the diehard atheists, I've nev I literally have never heard them say, you're lying. Mm -hmm. I, I have never heard them say that. It, they'll start tap dancing around it, but they never come directly out and deny it. And that, that fascinates me. It's just, it's foolishness. Psalm 14, 1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Yeah. It's just foolishness. Yeah. But they recognize the truth of Romans 1. Mm -hmm. That man knows that there is a God. That's, that's my point. It's, yeah. it, regardless of what they might argue to the opposite. Yeah. And I've said this to several atheists. And I've never had them say, well, and you, you know, full of crap or whatever. I've never heard them say that. Yeah. So... And how, I mean, because how utterly foolish is it to deny God, uh, to deny that there's a creator to all these things? Because you're left with the teaching that everything created itself, which is ridiculous. Uh, that there is no, no moral judge who holds people accountable. How ridiculous is that? Nothing, literally nothing matters. How ridiculous is that? I mean, it's just foolishness. Yep. And they know it in their hearts. Uh, but there's a suppressing that takes place. That's a, that's the thing. self <laughs> The entire, you're either in the pool or you're out of the pool. Yeah. If you're in the pool, you recognize that sin is rampant and that it's everywhere. It's in me, it's in you, it's in everyone. If you're out of the pool, you have to deny all of it. Yeah. It, it's, it's one or the other. It's, it's a, like an actual dichotomy. Yes. Right? And, yeah, the reason why people suppress the truth, the reason why people reject God is because they've inherited <laughs> Spiritual death. Okay, that's the only reason why. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about <coughs> like when we ran into issues with the PBS shows that the kids were watching. Like they don't. <coughs> and something that I've talked to our kids about is like they don't come right out and say there's no such thing as God and and like proclaim some kind of evolution evolution gospel, but they use their own presuppositions and they just teach them as if they're true. They don't. They don't say what they would have to say if they were pressed to mm -hmm. say it, but they just present <coughs> lies as truth through their own presupposition. So it's very sneaky, um, and of course it's in a controlled environment because they're producing it and putting it out there and you can't push back mm -hmm. on it. Yep, and they're presented as the authorities on the subject. You can't question the authorities on the subject, yeah. Yep, absolutely. Okay, we agree the man is dead. <laughs> yep. In the natural state, all people are guilty in Adam. So here's some summary thoughts here. In the natural state, what you're born into, all people guilty in Adam. All people have fallen short. And this is a, an interesting thought, and I think maybe I've talked about it in this class before. Uh, Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we talked about that as an archery term, you know. You miss the mark. That's what sin means. You miss the mark. But when we understand depravity, there, there are different ways to think about this. And when you understand depravity, there's a right way to think about it. People aren't trying to hit the mark. 
It's not like, oh, we're, I'm living life trying to hit the target. I'm trying to please God. I'm trying to do everything that I can. I just, I'm not able to because of my limitations, but I really want to. That's not what that means. They don't want to hit the mark. They hate the mark. They spit on the mark because the mark is God's holiness manifested in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the mark was nailed to a cross. So it's not that they're trying really hard to hit it. They just can't. It's that they hate the mark. Okay. They've all fallen short intentionally, willfully. All people are incapable of doing spiritual good. Now, these statements are getting harder and harder to swallow. Huh? That's it. All people are incapable of doing spiritual good in the natural state. And all people are condemned by God. And let me show you something. If you're still in Romans, you can turn over to chapter 8. That's another chapter that leads off with a great verse for us to memorize and hold dear. Let's have someone read verses 6 to 8. Romans 8, verses 6 through 8. Who's got that? I got it. Okay. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. All right. So, understanding what he taught about depravity in chapters 1 through 5 especially, here he's making some statements in chapter 8 about the mindset on the flesh. And for the unbeliever, their mind's always on the flesh. Right? Their minds are always set on the flesh. That's their natural state. And in that state, verse 7 says, they are unable, so it's an ability issue. They're not even able to subject themselves to the law of God. In verse 8, they cannot. This is an absolute ruling out of all other options. They cannot please God. So they are incapable of doing spiritual good. Okay. Thoughts on those summary statements there? This is a real bright and cheery class, isn't it? Dory. So if an un unregenerate person applies God's principles, they'll still reap some of the, the good of it. You got an example in mind? Like um, Mormons being married for life. Right. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, here's a word that just means or a term that means more and more to me as I live my life. The word com or the term, I keep saying word. Two words. The term common grace. Okay. So we see this first in uh, Matthew 5, I believe verse 45. Jesus says, God causes his reign to fall on the just and on the unjust. So uh, I've used this illustration before. You've got Christian farmer next to non-Christian farmer. Christian farmer doesn't get rain when he wants it and sun when he wants it and everything's perfect. And then over here, it's just drought all the time, right? You know, that's not how it works. In God's common grace, he allows even unbelievers to share in lots of good things. And he has his hand holding back much of their sin. Um, America is a great example. For a long time, America was kind of pictured, much of America, was pictured in our minds as Mayberry, Andy Griffith. It was just people had a a kind disposition toward a lot of Christian things, and a lot of people live their lives in a lot of Christian ways. 
even if they weren't Christians. That's how they lived their lives. What, what a great example of God's common grace on a nation that hasn't been really seen before ever in world history. That a nation would uphold so many biblical principles, even though, of course, a large portion of them were not Christians. But in God's common grace, he has suppressed sin in the culture, and he's uh, you know, allowed some people to partake in some activities that would be godly. And they do reap benefits from those things. But it's not so much their willingness as it is God's suppression of sin in their hearts. Because what we're seeing in the country now, God's lifting his hand, isn't he, on these things? I mean, you've seen in the last... I mean, you could say, of course, since uh, Roe v. Wade, right? Now we're going back older than Andy, right? No. Is it, was it 73 no. or 63? 73. 73, okay. Well, the 60s were really bad. So let's go back to just before Andy was born. <laughs> Um, and it, we could see a lot of bad, crazy stuff happening in the 60s that hadn't happened in our country before. Or it was like God was lifting his hand a little bit. Started with the 50s. <laughs> yeah. 50s were good. I, I want to go. I want to live in the 50s. But, uh, but you see in the 60s and then yeah, Roe v. Wade and things happening in schools. I mean, the public school system was suppressing so much sin through God's common grace, right? That they would start out days with prayer. That's like worlds away in our thinking that a public school system would do that. And then you get, especially in the last 30 years, especially, especially in the last 20 years, especially, especially, especially in the last 10 years, more and more things happening in the culture where it's not that people are getting worse, but it's that we're seeing more of their true nature. We don't believe people can get worse. <laughs> They're guilty, They've fallen short, they're incapable of doing spiritual good, and they're condemned by God. That's been true since Adam in their natural state. But God has really shed his grace on this country, and we've seen a lot of common grace, and now that's being removed. So really a long answer that hopefully answered some of the questions. What is it? Somewhat like maybe Israel? They came through these cycles, and they were all yeah. pretty good. The next generation, you kind of live further away. God may have lifted his hand a little further away from him as he's doing to us. Yeah. Oh, America was yeah. that us is truly. Right. Um, but America, in that sense of the words, uh, and we as Christians have to understand that in this scenario that we're living in, yeah. it is not going to probably get any better. Yeah. Yeah. It's not. <laughs> it, if, it's been getting worse. Yeah. And it's kind of like the old. Fact is, it's all going downhill. Yeah, many of the decisions seem pretty irreversible that we have made. But well, I'm I'm reading through Leviticus right now. Sorry, no, you're not sure. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, no, I'm I'm doing the. I've never actually read entirely through the Bible consciously, so I'm doing the chronological okay. Bible. I'm in Leviticus 17 right now. Yeah. And 16 and 15. And it's talking Those are about 16 and 17. Such key chapters. It's just talking about all the things that the nations were doing. I mean. I'm not going to share, you can read if you want, but you're looking at that and you're like going, well, we're not doing that one yet. Yeah. We're not doing that one yet. 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 And, it, and I'm, not, I'm not saying that I don't see that necessarily headed that direction, but what I'm trying to say is that, you know, it's just like days of Noah, right? Yeah. I mean, people did evil all the time. 100% of the time. It's like God's common grace. It just 
just like you said, you just pull this hand back and let people do what they want to do. And it's like, and this is a very key point because I do think many American Christians were duped into thinking that people weren't as bad as they really are. And if we, I mean, what I just said a minute ago, people aren't getting worse. If we really believe that, then what was different about the culture? It had to be God's inter intervening, God's grace. And God's now removing some of that common grace. And we're seeing what's always been there. It's just been suppressed by God's grace. So that's an important thing. It changes the way you look at it. Because a lot of people look around and say, what has happened to us? I want to go back when things were so good. It's, it was always there. And yeah, I mean, it would be great if God decided to suppress more of that sin and, and things happened in our country that changed and went back, but we can't dupe ourselves theologically into thinking that people weren't as bad. And there's a romantic notion that things were great in the 50s. Yes. Well, if you were black uh, in the South. Baseball was great. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> but it, I mean, if you were black in the South, the yeah. Jim Crow laws, yeah. I mean, yeah. there were actual open injustices being promoted by society. So, but given my druthers, even if I was black, I'd almost rather be back there. I mean that seriously. Yeah, I mean, we are we're living in a very pagan world. Yeah. Did you have, Jim, and then look. I like to give people an example of how, not that man is less simple, but our society, the norms in our society in the 50s, when I was a little kid, Jimmy Dean came out with a song called Big John. Mm -hmm. Everybody yeah. in here has heard it. Yeah, I know that song. Mm -hmm. You know how it originally ended? Mm -hmm. The original verses in that song ended, at the bottom of this pit lies a hell of a man. Mm -hmm. And they took that off the air, rewrote it to a big, big man. Ah, yeah. That wouldn't even... Because that was a dirty word then. Yeah, people wouldn't even blink an eye with yeah. that kind of language nowadays. Today they'd say, wow, Jimmy, you went kind of soft there at the end. Uh, <laughs> what kind of man was he? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't, I didn't hear what you said. What kind of man was he? Yeah. H-E double hockey stick. <laughs> hell of a man. Yeah. Gotcha, gotcha. Thank you. No, not offended. The opposite direction. Today, yeah. But then, they, they thought that was too... Yeah. Too harsh for the radio, yeah. The public, yeah. and they rewrote the song. It was on the air for months. I don't remember how long. I was a little kid. Yeah, and they took it off the air and rewrote it. Wow. Logan, then it's rewriting today. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, because um, I don't think this just applies to what we would call the sinners out there. And I may be wrong. Correct me if I'm not, but. Um, like the Israelites, they were God's chosen people. And they constantly, they would see their error, they would repent, and then they would fall back again. Yeah. And, and it's, it's a constant a human thing. It's yeah. a human nature. And, and I think even... Well, but Christ, let, me, let me put a stop right there, the yeah. footnote. Um, in Romans 8, so yes, in the context of Romans 8, Paul is talking about have your mindset on the spirit and not on the flesh. Because for the Christian... Uh, you have countless choices throughout the day to obey or not, right? <laughs> and, I mean, your, your disposition from the moment you wake up, you know, you need, you need to be thinking God-word in how you're living. Because if you have your mindset on the flesh, you will displease God. But yeah, what's different is, Christians have the option. 
non-believers don't have the option. Yeah. So it's not, you said something about it's about being human. Um, in the sense that a redeemed human, that's our option to obey and please God or to follow our own fleshly desires, right? Versus the But the non-believer, there you right. go. There you go. Because they're not, they haven't been born again. Yeah. They have no desires to please right. God. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, anyhow, I see religions today that try to push their agendas, whether it's legalism or whatever, and that seems to get worse and worse, mm -hmm. just like everything around us. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't, very seldom does it get better and better. Yes. And that's throughout the Bible, that's what happens. And when I hear somebody tell me of their church that over the hundred years or whatever, it just gets better and better while you're leaving it, then to me it red flags it. <laughs> Because they're it's like a they're, fine wine. They're incompetent <laughs> of, of seeing what's yeah. happening. You yeah. know, it's almost yeah, it's scary. Yeah, yes. There's a self-deception is one of the scariest concepts that Scripture teaches us about. Yeah. Self-deception, because we, we get deception like the serpent with Eve in the garden and all that. Self-deception. That's spiritual suicide. You're killing yourself. That's that's bizarre. Well, yeah. Yeah. Oh, but. No, like it says, like Paul says, among yourselves there will rise up false teachers, yeah. false prophets, whatever. And some of them are, they're all wearing sheep's clothing. They yeah. look good. They sound good. Everything. That's right. Yep, that's why they're on the stage. Yeah. Melissa? Oh, there's this female author who was talking about how like women in Christian circles can be infatuated with past eras where it seems like people were more pure or holy, like the Pride and Prejudice like fan group or whatever. There are different people who like different eras of the past, but they don't even completely understand all the sin that was going on in that era. They mm -hmm. pick and choose what they see in history. Yeah. And well, well, what they see on TV or in a movie. Because yes. they 99% of them haven't studied history. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then like some people will have like balls where like everyone can dress and it's, yeah, it's right. like this delusional like this is pure and this is moral and like back then people were doing awful things too yeah. they're just picking yeah. and choosing what they're yes absolutely yeah. absolutely and so first corinthians 7 that yeah. we went through yeah is that talking about common grace where he says husbands maybe your wife will be blessed by your faithfulness and vice versa. I think you even said that. Yeah, yeah, I, I talked, I did that sermon and spent some time on that that subject. But basically, yeah, there's a special grace that the unbelieving family members uh, have because of a believer in the home. And, uh, you know, I use the illustration of um, a buddy of mine who was in and out of jail all the time and his grandma was always praying. And God uses the means of his people to accomplish his ends on the earth. And so, um, my friend, without that grandmother there, would he have been saved? Right? God using her, I mean, obviously her prayers didn't save him. But God uses the means, I mean, someone had to preach the gospel to him, and you better believe grandma was always talking to him about God. You know? And so, there's a special grace by having the believers in the home. Okay, a few application thoughts. Where did, or I guess theological ones too. Where did sin come from? What's the biblical answer on this? Think back to the last week when we talked about the origin of sin. Where did sin come from? Fallen angels. The heart of Satan. There you go. Yeah, it was in him. 
That's all we're left with in Ezekiel uh, 28. Sin was found in you, he says to Satan. Why do you sin? Yeah. There are lots of correct answers to this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Well, Andy likes to sin. Yeah, yeah. That's true. This is true, yeah. Andy, we know this about you. It's yeah. kind of your thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it is. It is. You guys are all cool. <laughs> yeah, starts with Adam, right? We, but but it, well, let's carry that through. Okay, what from Adam? Sin nature. Good, sin nature. That was passed on, and you see that? Uh, he passed on his image and likeness to his son Seth. And if that just illustrates it goes from one generation to the next and on and on and on until it gets to us. Okay? Is it fair that we're born already guilty and under condemnation? Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Why do you say it's fair? Because we like our sin. Because we do it. <laughs> like, you, like you guys said, I do it with gusto. Yeah. Right? <laughs> So we all, we all want to sin. We're not innocent. We're not like some bystander that's not involved. It's not against our will. It's not against our will at all. But your will, where'd that come from? My will? Yeah, your will to want to sin. From Adam. Adam. So is that fair? And say. Um, that you didn't have a choice of what will to have. But God is fair, right? God is the one who assigned us our representative head, Adam. And so surely he would have assigned the most capable. But was it fair that Jesus went to the cross for me? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. Who's the arbiter of fire? Okay. I wish Jerry Baumann was here. He hates the word fair. It would have been great to have him <laughs> give a little rant on that. Life's not fair. Right? Yeah. <laughs> Is it just and good that we're born already guilty and under condemnation? To that, I think we have to say absolutely yes. Fair is, it's not a biblical word. That's what makes the word tough. It's fair is in the eye of the beholder. But is it just and good? Yes, because this is how God has set it up, isn't it? And is God totally just and totally good? Yes. yes. Okay. What's the answer to imputed sin? Imputed righteousness. Very good. What's the answer to this? This, Romans 5. Okay, that might be, that's the end. Okay. Very good. Well, um, Walker, you want to pray for the service ahead? Yeah. Go ahead.